Welcome to Miyagi Mornings Weekly Recap, a podcast version of our daily video series, Miyagi Mornings. Links to the video version of each segment can be found in the show notes for this episode. These recap episodes are a part of the Survival Podcast feed, but are numbered independently as a special weekly edition of our show in all podcast feeds. How's revenge? Daniel-san, you look revenge that way. Start by digging to a grave. Walk right side, safe. Walk left side, safe. Walk middle, sooner or later, get the squish just like grape. Hi folks, Jack Spierko here with another episode of Miyagi Mornings. Uh, today we are at episode 144 of the Survival Podcast. And uh, today's question came in from Matthew, and it came in on the MeWe post that I have sticking to the top of my profile. It's a great place to ask questions if you want to hear them on Miyagi Mornings. And it's basically, he wants to know how to start a garden when his whole backyard is nothing right now but lawn. And here's the basic question. Uh, what is the easiest way to turn lawn into garden for a newbie gardener? More details, I have a lawn in my backyard with no beds. I want to partially convert to gardens in zone 8. And I, I think I know which Matthew this is. And I think Matthew lives in my zone 8. Like, literally, you know, I could probably hit his, uh, his area with a couple rifle shots away. I think he's just a bit north of me. Uh, <laughs> excuse me. Uh, This is actually a great time of year for this question. And, and the reason it's going to sound really oddball when I first tell you why it's a good time of the year for this question. Because right now sucks to start a garden if you mean planting. It's August 2nd. It's my birthday. Yep, it's happy expelled from a birth canal day for Jack. But this is like the peak of what my grandfather used to call the dog days of summer. If you are in anything except truly temperate climates right now where you're kind of in your boom season for your garden, you're in your Darth. You're in your summer Darth. Where your goal, keep your plants alive so they can have that second big surge in the fall. Uh, that's where you're at. Now, right now, it's beautiful because it rained. It was unbelievable it rained yesterday, but it's going to be a bazillion degrees again by midweek. Um, and if you go out right now and you plant seeds this time of year, generally they don't come up because they freaking literally burn, or they come up and they do real poorly, or they come up and then they scorch. This is, you know, without shade, without kind of like, if you're a new gardener, this is not the time for planting. So why does that make this a great time for this question? Because the easiest way for you to prep garden beds is patience. It's patience. And it's very simple. It's very simple, and I've talked about it before, and it's using tarps. What you want to do right now And we're going to talk about some ways to make it even better. But this would be good enough if this was all you did. Get some tarps that either are or can be folded or cut to the dimensions of the beds you want to lay out. Make them a little bit bigger, at least a foot longer by a foot wider, at least. Even a little bit more would be good. Two foot, maybe even better. Lay them down where you want your garden beds. Weight them down. Let the sun Bake on top of them and deny them of light. Just cause all manner of death and destruction to the grasses, the rhizomes, the weeds, the docks. Deny them light. And this is the time to do it. A lot of people will uh, tarp through winter. It helps. You start out really great in the spring. 
The issue is a lot of the things you're trying to kill in the winter are dormant anyway. So we'll go ahead and we'll lay that tarp down through our winter, and yeah, when we, we get into spring and we pull it back, it's beautiful, but then all of a sudden all the little green shoots start coming up from the nut sedges and uh, different grasses and stuff like that because they're supposed to be dormant in the winter. So when it's cool enough, they tend to stay dormant. Now, there is one thing that is just exceedingly hard to kill that I have seen on my property turn completely usually this this time of year because we've gotten rain this year it's mostly still green but i've seen it turn completely brown i've walked on it and heard nothing but crunching like potato chips um i have seen it go six weeks without rainfall uh over 100 degrees every day i've had friends come visit and touch it and go there's there's no dew in the mornings get up first thing in the morning go out and be surprised that there's no dew no there's no dew here usually this time of year and then it'll rain And in two days, it all turns green, and that's Bermuda grass. Bermuda grass in this climate in a lot of the southeastern United States will always be the most difficult thing to keep out of your garden. But you'll knock it back more if you, if you tarp it now. Now, there's a couple ways you can do this. One is you can use a dark tarp. So you can use a, a standard tarp like you buy at Tractor Supply or whatever. You can use... Uh, like a black vapor barrier that you buy at like Home Depot and Lowe's and you, you cut it, it comes in a roll. That stuff's actually really convenient because it's usually 10 foot wide folded in half so it's a 5 foot roll. So you can just roll it out and cut it and just leave it folded in half and then you can roll it up and reuse it over and over and over again. Uh, those are great and what they'll do is they'll deny light so they'll have a given amount of effect on killing what's underneath it. The other way you can do it, Nick Ferguson really loves this method, is you can use clear plastic. When you use a clear plastic, like a vapor barrier that's a clear plastic, and you want to use a heavy, something that's not going to have an easy time breaking through, you're basically going to solarize the, the, the very surface. So now the light can get in, the plant tries to grow, and it can't grow. And it's being, in this time of year, it's being blazed with heat. You can do either one. Um, The theory being that if we do it with solarization, we're doing a better job of killing everything. I have personally tried both. I have personally found my results seem to be better for me using a dark-out tarp um, it, for how long it lasts. I've not found that either one really lasts for good. Um, that's my results. Your results may vary. But one way or another, mark out the area, tarp it, kill everything, plant into it. That's the easy answer Uh, doing this. If you're going to do raised beds, and you really need to think before you do raised beds, especially in hot climates, the, 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 what we really want to do in our climate, in hot climate, is go in the ground as deep as possible. The deeper the pit, the better. And so if you look at, uh, in arid climates, Native American gardens, it's pit gardening. It's, it's always pit. It's not raising up. You look at me and you're like, well, jackass, you, you have all the huge raised beds. They're freaking two foot tall. I'm doing that to avoid ducks eating my, my vegetables, but I'm also doing that because I have no soil. It's like, like here is like gardening on a, um, on like a parking lot. If I live somewhere else, if I had raised beds, they would only be maybe one layer and it would just be to visually help me identify where I need to say your weeds may not infiltrate like it's a good way to kind of like pull back weeds and know where your delineation line is so here's some other things that you can do 
whatever organic matter you can get, lay it down in the area before you cover it, with an exception. Please don't use grass clippings unless you absolutely know they are coming from somewhere that does not have like a true green Kemlon-like herbicidal thing going on. Kind of my favorite thing to do is rake up a bunch of leaves. Oak leaves are kind of the best. Run them over with a lawnmower so that they're, they're matted up and lay that down. Before you do that, lay down a good organic fertilizer. My favorite option here is going to be um, uh, Dr. Earth, and that's kind of my go-to, and I have a discount for members of the MSB on all the Dr. Earth products. Um, so that's definitely what I would recommend to use. But a good organic fertilizer that's not just a good organic fertilizer. You also want an organic fertilizer that has a good amount of bioactive um, microorganisms in it. That's one of the reasons that I love the Dr. Earth product. Good fungal and good bacterial colonies. And whatever it says to do on the bag for that first time while this is going on, double it. And if you can get your hands on multiple other organic materials, lasagna it, do as much as you can, but you've got to tarp it, and you can go too much depth on your first pass, because remember what we're trying to do when we're trying to tarp this, we're trying to kill everything we don't want, we're trying to kill the grass, we're trying to kill the docks, we're trying to kill the nut sedge, we're trying to kill all that stuff, and we're doing that through denial of light. The more we mulch it, the more we protect it, and the longer it's going to live in that inhospitable situation we've tried to create. But here's the good news. If we just go with a thin layer and let it break down, we put down that, um, that organic fertilizer and put down something to feed the soil organisms. And probably the easiest thing is throw down um, chicken feed or any sort of animal feed. Throw it down. Throw it down like you're heavily fertilizing with it, in addition to your fertilizer. Put down your stuff on top of it, your organic material, and tarp it. And what's going to happen is you're going to attract microscopic and, 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 and you know, macroscopic soil organisms, everything from earthworms and little critters and stuff like that. Because even though you're creating this incredibly hot zone, you know, just like an inch of the top of the surface, you're really going to create a very hot zone. Just underneath there, it's actually going to be cool and moist, and happiness. And every time it rains, that's going to infiltrate, and you're going to get more and more critters in there. So what's going to happen is when you pull that tarp back when you're ready to plant, all the stuff in there that didn't die, you'll be able to just pull it right out so easily. You'll be surprised because the soil will have tilth, and you'll be able to go in with a shovel and just kind of dig it up and pull out any remaining rhizomes or something like that. And then I really recommend that you do something to create a border even if it's just um, bricks or something like that, something where you have this visual idea of where I need to stop things, and then in between your rows, I think it makes sense to use weed blocker and to basically don't let the weeds get to the edge. So if you had three beds, and I'm, if you're not watching the video version of this, it, it's going to make a lot more sense in the video, but if you have three beds and they're like my hands, one, two, three, your rows in between, and then your circumference all around the outside. You want weed blocker for all of that as well. And then if you'll stay on it, all you'll really have to do is maybe every once in a while you kind of reboot everything by retarping the beds. And now you can really pile on the organic matter in that second, 
that second time. There's a ton of ways to do this, but this is the if you, what Matthew asked for was the easiest way. Uh, and Plant Propagation USA says sweet potato have been covering my Bermuda grass very well. I think that sweet potato is the number one ground cover that you can use as long as you will realize that it will climb up shit. So like when you have peppers and stuff, you have to keep an eye on it. And if you cut back and you let your peppers and your tomatoes and all your stuff that needs to grow above it, stay above it, um, that's what I didn't do this year. I love purple sweet potato. I did not plant it this year. I'm having actually, just full disclosure, I'm having a miserable garden year this year. This is my worst year as a gardener in 20 years. And part of it is things got really disrupted here this year. Part of it is weather. Uh, but most of it was just I had other priorities this year instead of my garden. And that doesn't mean we don't have food. It just means that we're not having this kind of blowing, glowing, amazing, like, wow, look at it type thing. In fact, we're, you know, we're having plenty of peppers and eggplants and stuff like that, despite um, a lot of apathy this year. So just I kind of wanted to disclose that. I also want to let you guys know I will be uh, doing some videos for you re soon. Uh, I've got some, uh, some really cool chickens that are starting to really come into their own, that cross that I made. Uh, so that'll be coming as well. And otherwise, this is a really simple one. So I want to go ahead and wrap up uh, the podcast version. We'll be back tomorrow with another episode of Miyagi Morning. Well, hi, folks. Welcome to Miyagi Mornings, episode 145. I kind of threatened that this would happen, and now it's happening. Uh, an episode this week on Bitcoin that's really going to focus on why I say, and I am not alone in this, that we are about to enter a Bitcoin super cycle. And I, I'm going to say that I think we're going to go well over the target of fair value. And fair value can go up and will go up in this cycle But right now, fair value is probably somewhere between 52 and 54,000. Um, so when Bitcoin's trading at 38,000 with a fair market value of about 52 to 54, it's still in a pushed down state. It still represents a buying opportunity. Where do I get that number? Gentlemen, I mentioned yesterday when I hinted that this episode would be coming, Willie Wu. Um, I trust Willie's analysis of on chain analytics better than just about anybody in the business. And that's the number he puts on it, and I think that's a pretty fair number right now. Now, what I'm saying is, as, as you hear all the things that are going on right now, as we approach that number, it's not that that number can't go up, and it's not that that number can't come back down. That's just where I believe that it is right now. I want to start out with, like, the most negative thing you can really come up with right now, and it's... It's not potentially inside an infrastructure bill. There might be a thing that says that somebody's a broker. Um, government's going to do what it's going to do. Honestly, the, uh, the most negative thing you can say right now is um, the holdup on releasing an approval for a Bitcoin, Bitcoin Ethereum, some sort of crypto ETF. And that all comes down to one dude, Gary Gensler. And I have a ton of links in, in, in the uh, notes for today, so you can check all this stuff out. Gensler's basically saying, well, you know, what we need is more, more protections for investors before we do that. It's a stall tactic, and it's bullshit, and it doesn't hold any water up against um, any other investment that's already approved for people to invest in publicly. So... You can right now go open up an account with, you know, E-Trade or Robinhood or whatever, 
you can leverage up money right out of the gate, you know, and you can completely lose your ass. There is no investor safeguard that prevents you from losing, nor should there be, but there isn't. So what the hell kind of investor safeguard could you possibly have for Bitcoin that's lacking? Is Bitcoin's blockchain not more transparent than GE or Exxon's accounting right now? Don't you have like millions of people all over the world that can instantly audit the blockchain and tell you if it's doing what it's supposed to be doing right now? In fact, the, 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 the most lacking piece of safeguard for Bitcoin is that if you're an idiot, you can lose your Bitcoin. So if you were to actually approve something like an ETF, you would create a safeguard that is the only safeguard that doesn't exist right now, which is by having this public form of account, you would have a company that literally must prove that it's holding the Bitcoin that it says it's holding. Because the only investor safeguard you can have with any asset that can go up and down in value, and this whole shit about volatility is nonsense. You know, what, you know what else is volatile? The stock market. You know what else is volatile? Oil. Do you know what else is volatile? Natural gas. Do you know what else is volatile? Oranges. Do you know what else is volatile? Pork bellies. I mean, tell me something people invest in that lacks volatility. Even bonds have volatility. This is stupid. This is stupid. So none of these investments come with or are ever going to come with FDIC insurance or anything like that. So the only safeguard you could actually put in place would be, hey, if you want to buy Bitcoin and you buy it here, you can't lose your Bitcoin. That would be what an ETF would do. So my opinion is, and I think there's a tremendous amount of evidence for this, that there are a lot of very wealthy people who are late to the game on Bitcoin. And they are looking and doing all they can to get their grubby little hands on as much Bitcoin as they, as they can get their hands on. And unlike a lot of other places where they can just go out and buy as much as they want, doesn't work that way here. A lot of that money is institutional, and thereby it is held up, and they are being prevented from buying it. That's what ETFs would do, but ETFs wouldn't do it for you know, the private investment firms and stuff like that that already can do it in the United States. That would be public funds, which doesn't really help the institution as much as it helps the individual. So we can stall that. And I believe that is absolutely what's going on here. Um, on the other side... We have massive buckets of institutional money having just been opened. Having just been opened. And $2.1 trillion is a little bit of money. $2.1 trillion U.S. dollar value. That's $1.8 trillion in euros. Just in the country of Germany was opened up and allowed to invest in cryptocurrencies. And primarily this will be Bitcoin and Ethereum yesterday on my birthday. That was a birthday present I got. Germany said, yeah, you know, you know, you guys can invest in this. And, and I've got pushback from that. Says, that doesn't mean they're gonna. Okay, um, are you high? Do you think that a government like the German parliament moves to do a thing like this without impetus? They're just like, you know, hey, you know what? Maybe they want to, maybe they don't. Who knows? Maybe we should just be nice and allow it. Or do you think the way a decision that's, that's momentous gets done is the sort of lobbyists from the entities that it affects saying, hey, we want to do this? If you get 1% of that money 
into a market state that we're in right now, which is where we're going into high illiquidity. And illiquidity always sounds bad because generally when people say something's illiquid, it means that you can't sell it. And, and, and so it means that there's not a market for it. So that sounds like it's negative if you're holding the asset. The, the type of illiquidity that Bitcoin is being experienced right now is you can't buy it because people don't want to sell it. And there's plenty of people selling and there's lots of trading. There's, you know, billions and billions of dollars a day, but there's a pinch point. And, and we're definitely hitting that. Again, I have, I have links and sources for all this. Um, on top of this, everybody talks about the whales, the whales, the whales, the whales, man, it's the whales, you know? It's the whales. It's all about the whales. Um, the whales are losing their dominance. The whales are losing their dominance, and this is um, this is also huge. Like, it does matter that this institutional money comes in and stuff like that. But what institutional money can do, if that institutional money is an amalgamation of a lot of people that are, like, holding retirement accounts and stuff like that, you know, they're teachers and, and, and what have you, um, it can create the illusion of a false whale. Because, you know, Joe Blow's mutual fund is not... Joe Blow doesn't own all the stocks held in that mutual fund. All the people that Joe Blow manages the money for do. So you end up with this very broad group of people that actually own and make their own individual holding and buying decisions. And all of this co combined together, when they do on-chain analysis, again, this, my source on the number I gave you yesterday was Willie Wu, and he said there's any war between 40 and 50,000 new individual Bitcoin users net per day coming into the, the field and now owning and holding some Bitcoin. Well, I have a source article for you in the notes here, and right now they just did an estimate of what, what was yesterday. And almost like Willie knows what he's doing, it was f over 54,000 new individuals came into the Bitcoin ecosystem yesterday. Let's say that again, 54,000. So now what you're getting is you're getting this really weird time in history where you're having this, this explosive growth of what they call retail investors. And the affluency level of retail investors continues to rise. You know, we're not talking about people that come in and like, man, I'm investing in Bitcoin, I'm investing, and they say that for like three years. And no disrespect or anything, but after three years, you're like, well, how many Bitcoins do you have? And they're like, I've got a quarter of one, man. The, 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 the new people coming into this are starting to be the people that come in and, like, buy a Bitcoin. You know, or they, they, they dump 25 grand in. Or, you know, they, they start doing a DCA buy-in of two, three, five hundred $500 a month, and they sustainly do this. And that seems like a small drop in the bucket until you start multiplying it by factors like 40 and 50,000. And you start realizing that from August 1st through the end of 2021, if we pare it down to 40,000, we're talking 6 million new users. And so you get into this position where this mythology around the whales begins to ebb as you get more and more dispersion of the available supply. And the whales are the people that are like, you know what, I made 100% this year. I'm cashing some of that shit in. The smaller holders are the ones like, I'm buying this shit for the next you know, 10, 15, 30 years. They don't sell. They pull more and more supply 
off the market, and no matter what you say, and some of you people are still on your bullshit about, you can cut and paste it, it's vaporware. It doesn't work that way. I don't have time to explain it to you yet again because you don't want to understand it. There's 21 million units, and every about three years we have a halving, and we're getting to a point where the halvings are going to stop mattering because there's not enough new production to account for the demand. That's why we have an illiquid situation. It's kind of a backwards illiquidity. Instead of not being able to sell it, you can't buy it without paying an accelerated price against what you would have looked at just a few weeks ago. We're at a point now, we still have volatility. It can go up and down. I'm not saying it won't. What I'm saying is you've reached a point, and when you look at the totality of what's happening, you've reached a point that any small pressure, the smallest of pressures on buying, pushes price up. Small pressures that a year ago, two years ago, five years ago, there's always been this big kind of upswing, downswing with news and rumors. But what I'm saying is when you actually have like just some more people want to buy it, it's immediately forcing it up. And there's also some good news in some of the FUD. So Elon Musk came out and said, I don't really know about this because environment. What changed about Bitcoin's impact on the environment between the time Elon Musk bought Bitcoin for Tesla and the time Elon Musk said he's worried about the environment? What changed? And the answer is absolutely the square root of fuck all nothing. And he did not know how Bitcoin worked when he spent over a billion dollars worth of Tesla's money on it. It's all FUD. It's all nonsense. China banned Bitcoin. Again. But for real this time. Good. You know what I would prefer out of China? Let's just have China ban Bitcoin completely. Anybody that gets caught with a Bitcoin in China gets thrown off of a building or something like that. Go ahead and do it. Go ahead and do it. Because it doesn't actually effing matter. It's not important. It doesn't matter. We pushed uh, hashes down to about 88 equi hashes a day or something like that, which was like a low for you know in a, in a given time. They came right back up because all that happened is all the mining operations moved out of China and went elsewhere. So if China would finally get off their ass and just be done with it, we could stop talking about China. China is irrelevant to an asset that only has an asset class of 20, or uh, uh, an asset cap. Of 21 million units. They're not important. They're, how many things do you value in your life that you have and you don't think they're going to go away, but they're illegal in China? How many of you own guns? Are you going to not have guns because China bans guns? You see how stupid that is? In fact, this entire idea that we're going to have Bitcoin get banned or cryptocurrency get banned is stupid. It's not doable. And the rich people want in on it. That's why this whole idea about, well, regulation, like, what isn't regulated? What is brokered that isn't regulated in the world today? Everything is. Everything of value is regulated one way or another when it's brokered. Now, I don't want anybody to think that I'm advocating for this or I want more regulation on Bitcoin. I don't. I would prefer there's no regulation on anything. I also know my pay grade. My opinion about this will not change what's going to happen, right? But my analysis of what's going to happen is what's actually important for me and for you. So they can, they can, they can regulate brokers. They can say that, that certain classes of people have to do KYC if they want to be involved. You know what they can't ever do? They can't ever do this. Let me make sure I don't pull the wrong thing out here. This is just a USB stick. 
that I'm about to show you. It's just a plain old USB stick. But imagine that that is a Nano Ledger wallet or something similar. You know what you can't do? You can't do, you can't do fuck all about this. You can't stop this. You can't make me register this. You can't do this. You can't ban this. And if I want to take some numbers off of this and transmit it to you, there is literally nothing they can do. And they are not stupid. They know this. And they know how valuable that it is becoming. And hence, they want a piece of it. They want control of it. And they can only have so much control of it, so they use fear to make you afraid of it so that they can have more of it than you. You've been given the first chance to front-run the establishment in modern history, and many of you are blowing it. I'm sorry, you are. Because I'm going to ask a question. It's on the, it's on the screen right now for those of you uh, watching the live stream. How many of you, if you wanted to, could buy illegal drugs in less than five minutes from your home? I'm not saying you're going to. I'm saying you could if you wanted to. Now, think about what it takes. And, and don't give me your shit about, well, the CIA makes money. Yeah, the CIA makes money on dope. Everybody knows that. But the CIA doesn't make money on all the fucking dope. There's plenty of cops. There's plenty of law enforcement at every level trying to put dope dealers in prison, and they have been since forever. Right? So how, how are we going to get dope from one point to another? So some guy in, in Tennessee gets some batteries and some shit and has to mix up some sort of meth in a bottle. And hopefully he doesn't blow up his trailer. But he does it, so he makes the meth. Then he has to go out and physically exchange the meth with another person for some form of payment. And they have to keep this supply and physical delivery going. And you can't stop that. And you can't even stop it. For the love of God... Folks, you, they can't even stop it in prison. If you want dope in prison, you can get dope in prison. Everything that gets goes in and out is searched, and you can't stop dope in prison. But you're going to stop the exchange of ones and zeros on a blockchain-driven public ledger with tremendous opportunity. Like, there's all kinds of ways to do this very, very privately. You're going to do that? No, you're not going to do that. You can't do that. And they know they can't do it. You, if, if you look at everything that's happening right now, there's only one conclusion you can come to. We're about to go for a hell of a ride. We're about to go for a hell of a ride. And, and the people that are telling you don't are. They're doing it themselves. This is a point where they got to this and they went, man, this, this, this this isn't going to go away, is it? We better get some. Holy shit! Even if you're a millionaire, a billionaire right now, it's kind of expensive, isn't it? If we all buy it too fast at one time, oof, don't think these people don't coordinate with what you do. Don't believe them when they say they're protecting investors. Protecting them from what? How the hell do you... What do you, what do you want for an investor safeguard... For somebody that buys an ETF that holds Bitcoin. What kind of investor safeguard do you think you need? You don't need any. The existing structure provides four public investment safeguards already. Again, all that that entity need do is prove that if we say we're holding 10,000 Bitcoin, we're holding 10,000 Bitcoin, and it's easier to verify that than anything else that we put into an ETF right now. There's all kinds of bullshit you can pull 
to say that you own shares of stock that you don't actually own, or you control shares of stock that you're leveraged on the other side of that you don't actually control. But if a firm says, we own this, where's the freaking address? Okay, we have 12 addresses it's held on. Okay, where are they? Done, audited, it's over, it already happened. Don't believe their bullshit. Don't believe the fight. Because you know what happened? We just had a whole shitstorm of fight. We just had a freaking FUD fest. We just had a FUD fest and a fear fest at the same time. And Bitcoin went, yeah, 30 grand, that's it, I ain't going no lower. Do you know why? Because supply does not meet demand. And it can't meet demand. And the only thing that can happen when you end up in that situation with basic economics is the price per unit has to go up over time. This is coming, and it's coming right now. And I'm not saying it's the, the, the final one. I'm not saying that when we run this super cycle, there won't be some big pullback. I'm not saying to go out and, and mortgage your kid's college fund and put it into Bitcoin. I'm saying that the opportunities continue to, to wane. And the time to get involved with this was a couple years ago. The next best time is now. And I don't think you're going to see a much better opportunity than you just saw again. I could be wrong. But the run-up that I'm seeing, I, I, I personally think the run-up is somewhere near $100,000. I'm not sure. I'm not sure about that. But the run-up, I'm that's my gut. And I think it's going to be a hell of a psychological barrier, and I'll tell you why. There's a shitload of people out there. They're not whales. You know, they're not sharks. They're fish or they're big minnows. They own 20 Bitcoin. They own 30 Bitcoin. There's a lot of people like that. There's a lot of people like that that are, that are really firm hodlers. They don't sell. But one day you're going to wake up and it's going to be like, if I sell 10 Bitcoin, I have a million dollars. And I still have, you know, another 20. I can cash that, pull a million bucks, put it to the side, and I'm a millionaire, plus I still have crypto. And I think you get a lot of selling on that run-up in that mindset because, you know, at 75 grand, what is it going to be, 15? You know, so like there's, and I think at 50,000 there was some of that. We saw a psychological barrier, but so much crazy shit happened, we blew right through it, and it was the Elon hype. But guys, this won't go away. And those of you that insist that it's going to, I'm going to tell you one more time where you're coming from. You're angry and you're bitter because you didn't listen to people like me over the last 6, 8, 10 years. And you feel that you missed your opportunity. Okay. Keep holding your breath. Anyway, with that, we will catch up tomorrow with another one else. Hi, folks. Jack Spirico here with Miyagi Mornings, episode 146. Today, we're going to talk about one of my favorite things. We're going to talk about fishing. And this is, you know, a thing I've done entire podcasts on. I've gotten deep into different types of fish, how to find places to fish, how to keep costs down so this actually makes sense from, um, a sustainability standpoint, a personal sustainability standpoint. I just kind of wanted to, to bring this up and discuss it with you um, from a standpoint of how effective it actually is. And I, I want to start out with kind of a an admission, I guess, maybe that homesteaders have a hard time making. And that is that 
no matter how much we do to try to produce a lot of our own livestock food on property, unless we have really significant amounts of property and we're, we're doing something like raising ruminants, like if you're ra- I mean, if you have a enough acreage and you're raising a few cows and pigs and goats a year for meat for your family, you can absolutely produce all of your protein and fat and you can do it with almost no inputs. Most of us do not have the amount of land to do that. So if we have chickens, if we have rabbits, if we have whatever, we're probably bringing in significant inputs. And they also have um, a need of us to take care of them. Again, like if you have a large acreage and you have cattle that are uh, in a pretty easy to manage um, rotational grazing system, you, there's a lot of times you're not doing anything at all. Most of us, though, even just a small chalk, flock of chickens, you know, it's a daily chore and it ties us to our property. Additionally, things like gardening and stuff like that, I love it, but there is a fundamental limit to how much nutritional density we can produce with plants. They are the, uh, you know, the, the basically three types of things we do for food. Um, there's fungi, there's uh, plant matter, and then there is animal matter. Um, plants are probably more nutritionally dense than fungi, like mushrooms and stuff like that, though mushrooms have some other things that they do that are pretty amazing. Uh, but they, plants just cannot compare to animals. So we end up in this situation where we have a certain amount of input, a certain amount of cost, a certain amount of labor for us to produce high-quality fats and proteins, whether that's eggs, whether that's meat, whether that's bacon. You know, I know bacon's a kind of meat, but I'm just kind of throwing it out there. Whereas if we're looking at it more from the standpoint of being a hunter or a trapper, we can go out and we can shoot a deer, right? We can shoot a deer and then we have, you know, uh, 60, 70 pounds worth of meat out of a, a good size whitetail, uh, sometimes a bit less depending on what part of the world we are in and where we're, um, where we're hunting and how big the deer are. The deer that I hunted as a kid in Pennsylvania were much bigger bodied animals. Uh, than we have down here in Texas. So generally the more north, uh, the larger the animal is. But what you'll find in much of the country with hunting is, first of all, your season is incredibly limited in time for most of the country. Uh, number two, land access can be extremely expensive, or in places where there's lots of public land, sometimes it's so heavily hunted, uh, chances of success go way down, just pure number of bodies. So I love to hunt. I've hunted my whole life. I will always hunt. Um, but when I look at it from a standpoint of what is the one thing that makes use of what we would call public resources, public lands, that can put the most calories on your plate consistently throughout most of the year, no matter where you live in the United States, the answer is fishing. And if I look at it as, you know, per ounce of meat on a plate to dollar cost, I don't think anything else can come close. And if you, if you look around the world, it is the number one means of protein and fat sustenance for poor people throughout the world is fishing. It really is. Anywhere that it's possible, people do it. And I know sometimes people say, well, there's not a lot of fat in fish. Depends on the type of fish and what we're talking about. Now, today I'm talking about fin fish, right? I'm talking about fish that swim and we catch them on a rod or, or what have you. 
But there's actually a lot of fat in a lot of different shellfish, and that is an incredible uh, resource used by people throughout the world, especially in impoverished areas uh, on coastal situations. So one way or another, gathering from from the water. The other thing is some fish actually are really incredible sources of fat, salmon and different trout species and all as well. Catfish have a great amount of wonderful high-quality fat in them, especially channel cats, blue cats, uh, and once they get to a certain size, uh, bullhead catfish as well. So there's there's a lot of fat available there. But number one protein source in the world for people, especially in poor areas, is self-collected fish of some form. In the United States, we actually have an incredible bounty available to us. Yeah, flatheads too. Uh, in the the live chat there, um, flathead catfish definitely have a uh, uh, a really high quality fat as well. Then in the United States, we just have this ability that almost no matter where you live, I would say within 30 minutes of your home, there's a place you can catch fish that are edible. Now, we can talk about polluted waterways and all, and some are worse than others, but in general, there's some place where the risk of that is significantly low. And if your choice is to like start thinking about this as a survival topic, to starve or risk the potential that maybe it's not the most clean source of fish in the world, I would rather not starve. And I think that the other side of this is like, So go back to hunting or trapping or something like that. Not only do we have these very limited seasons, expensive access to land, the ramp up to understanding and having enough knowledge to be successful for hunting is a much more steep incline than it is for fishing. I I guarantee you that anybody that picks a place or two and dedicates themselves and says, I'm going to figure out what fish are in here, what they eat, how to fish for them, your your track to where you'll be able to gather fish for food is relatively shallow and short. It's not that hard. I grew up in Jacksonville, Florida as a kid before the Internet. I mean, way before there was anything approaching an Internet. I remember being, you know, an eight-year-old kid, a seven-year-old kid, going down to the lake, watching what other people did, tying freaking fish hooks on like an idiot with a double overhand knot, Uh, doing almost everything wrong and still being able to figure out how to catch fish. Like if I can do that at seven or eight, then, you know, with a, with a Zepco 202 rod and reel combo from Eckerd Drugs for like seven bucks back then, right? Then you can do this as a grown ass adult and possibly with your kids and teaching them. I didn't really have that guidance. I had to go figure it out myself. The way we learned to fish back then is we got magazines like Outdoor Life and Field and Stream and stuff and read. Like you didn't go online. There wasn't all these great communities. There's so much information available today. And a lot of people tell me like they have a really hard time finding places to fish around where they live. And my number one hack that I've been able to find places to fish that normally I guess you just wouldn't notice when you're driving around or whatever. It's been Google Earth and Google Maps. You, know, you just pull up Google Maps, take a look at your area, you know, go to the map view first, look for any blue signs of water, and then you know kind of start drilling into that. Then you can switch into the uh, satellite view. You can start drilling down. You, and a lot of places even have street views. So I found places where creeks uh, go across roadways, And like, okay, so is it worth me driving 30 minutes to go check this place out? 
if it has a street level view, I'm able to basically walk up and down the street and say, well, there's a place I could park my car. That looks like there would be access there. So yeah, that's worth doing. Or, oh, this just looks like a place you'll get run over and killed and there's no real good access. No, I'm not going to go there. Okay. Then we'll follow that stream to the next place that crosses the road and see if we can find a good access point, streams, ponds, et cetera. There's just tons of things like that. And, uh, you know, my wife just showed me a pond that I haven't fished yet, but I'm going to try pretty soon. It's, it's only about 15 minutes from the house. You know, and it has a sign up. It says no fishing after dark. You know what that means? Fish all you want before dark. And I don't think anybody would bother me for fishing there after dark anyway. Um, there are just so many opportunities for fishing in the U.S. And let me tell you this. You guys that have access to salt water, you have it even better. If if you live somewhere where you can easily drive to a beach, park your car, throw your shit in a cart, go down there and surf fish, there's no reason that you can't provide half of, of all your protein meals just from that. It, it doesn't take that much to learn, and it is one of the most underutilized resources, I think, that we have. In, and I'm just talking the prepper homesteader space. We put all this effort into raising chicken so we can get a few dozen eggs a week or something like that. And uh, maybe we put a lot of effort into running a meat run of chickens or ducks or something. And that all requires, again, it requires inputs. It requires time. It requires labor. I'm not speaking against it. I'm just saying, like, here you have this other thing over here where nature does all the real work. And you just go out and you just you just partake in the bounty. And I would say the biggest Thing, and I'm asking a question right now. What is the biggest reason you don't go fishing more often? For people that like to fish, it's usually something like I don't have enough time, etc. And I understand that. For people that have never really done a lot of fishing, they don't claim that they like fishing. They really don't know, right? They just, it's just a thing that they've heard about or, uh, maybe they've gone a time or two. I think it's that they are, they don't really understand what fishing is and what it can be. So maybe they've gone a time or two. They didn't catch anything. They were out in the weather and the weather sucked. Uh, maybe the person they were with really didn't know what they were doing. I, I don't know. Right. But I have never found anybody that really objects to going fishing. If you can do two things, number one, see to comfort. Right. So I think that's one of the most important things is to make sure that, like, if you're a person that really needs a comfortable chair, that you bring a comfortable chair. I mean, that's to me, that's a huge thing in of itself. But having, you know, some some basic food and drink, maybe some whatever it is for you. Right. And then you do catch some fish. Right. And that's just a, that's just an experienced learning curve. Right. And, and there are times when even when you've kind of cracked the code of an area or whatever, maybe seasonality ebbs, maybe there's some sort of uh, major pressure change due to a weather and, and something is impending. And sometimes those major pressure changes up or down can turn fish on. It can also turn them off. Right. So there's times when you're but if if, if you generally catch fish and you see to your comfort, then I think that most people end up really enjoying it because it's spending out the time outside. Um, you know, a lot of times when I go fishing, I set up some rod holders. I put the rods in. If I don't, if I don't score a hookup on every hit, I'm okay with it. And I take out a book and I sit there and read. And it amazes me sometimes when you talk to people about fishing and you're, they're like, well, I don't, I like to fish because it's boring or whatever. And you say, well, do you like to sit out and hang out and read or listen to music and have a couple beers? But yeah. 
Okay, well, there's no reason you can't do that with a couple rods in the water. And I think people that take more of that approach, that don't try to take it on as like some sort of super sport or something like that, where it's a failure if you don't catch the next biggest fish or whatever, tend to really enjoy themselves because, again, it is more just kind of an outdoor activity. But I, I personally don't know. I personally don't know of any other activity that we can engage in for so little that is so universally approachable that has such a high ROI from a standpoint of, of meat acquisition. So think about the fact that if you go to like Kroger's or Albertsons or Publix or something like that, and we just forget about like really expensive fish, just stuff like farm-raised catfish or tilapia or whatever, you're looking somewhere in the neighborhood of, of five to ten dollars a pound for fish. And a lot of the fish that we can catch are way higher quality than that. But let's just use seven bucks a pound. So if you go fishing for three hours and you catch, I don't know, ten pounds of fish, you know, by the time you clean it and, and what have you, you end up with ten pounds of fish, seventy bucks. Even if you catch five pounds of fish, that's $35. Now, that's not making a lot of money, but if you're taking a recreational activity and you're turning into something that nets you somewhere between seven to twenty to thirty dollars an hour in value, plus it's a recreational activity. And then there are times when if you really get into figuring an area out, you can do way better than that. Um, you get into a position where you have a very, and I'm using this word again, sustainable activity. When I say sustainable, it means I'm talking in this instance that you can afford to keep doing it indefinitely. And then if we had some basic knowledge on how to store, clean, cook, and prepare our fish, then we end up with something that can contribute massively to our table and to our, to our, you know, to cutting back our grocery bill. Because remember, like, if we have a meal this week and it comes from fish that we went out and caught, we have very little money into that acquisition. It's not just, oh, here's here's $15 worth of fish. It's $15 worth of fish, plus it's $15 we didn't spend. It's a, it's a totally different way of looking at it. And this is why, where I grew up, while everybody hunted, because there was a, a certain value you knew that every every you know person of age in the family could have one deer a year. So even people in the family that didn't hunt, like you know, you there were plenty of guys that would take their daughter hunting, and the daughter's not going to hunt, and the daughter slept in the truck, and so dad or brother or uncle pops the deer, and we go back little sister and put her tag on the deer. Like tons of stuff like that happened. Everybody did that. But again, it was a, a seasonal kind of once a year thing. Everybody had the family go fishing all the time because it was this consistent, ongoing resource that had a great deal of value from an economic standpoint. And so if you're not, if you're not someone that's really taken this on, I, I would recommend that you at least consider it. You know, get some really basic gear. You can gear up for well under a hundred bucks 
and go out and learn about the areas around you, learn about the fish that are available, learn out the most basic methods of catching them, learn how to process them. This is an incredibly valuable skill set. And at the same time, it will increase situational awareness of all the resources in your area. With that, we'll go ahead and wrap up, and I'll be back tomorrow with another episode of Miyagi Mornings. Hi, folks. Welcome to another episode of Miyagi Mornings. This is episode 147, and it's uh, six stupid, simple, high ROI crops for your garden. And I mentioned during the preliminary that if you're over on Odyssey, it might say five instead of six. And the way that happened is I'm not as sharp as I usually am right now, and um, somebody on MeWe is the one that caused this episode today. They said, talk about sweet potatoes. And I was like, yeah, well, let's talk about things like sweet potatoes that are really high ROI, really robust like honey badger crops, things like that. And then I did up all the notes and looked at it, and there were five crops, and none of them were sweet potatoes. So I added sweet potatoes and it became six. So that's how we ended up where we are today. Anyway, so I, I want to kind of start out with what I mean by this, and uh, I'm interested in hearing from some of you guys, what crops have you had the most problems with? And if you're going to answer that question for me in the comments, include like your region. I know you might not want to give away your exact location, but like there's a big difference between growing you know, tomatoes in Pennsylvania versus tomatoes in Florida versus tomatoes in Texas. So just that kind of thing. Um, some of my favorite things to grow that, and specifically to regions, have been traditionally like the easy crops I have the most problems with in Texas. Tomatoes, I have a whole new way that I handle tomatoes. I plant them as early as I can. I harvest them until they you know, start getting blight, and I rip them out of the ground. I don't even worry about them for the rest of the year. I just get them early, and when the blight comes, the blight comes. Like I've had issues with that. I've had um, a lot of issues around here with beans. Beans are like the easiest thing to grow. Like Anybody can grow beans, except in Texas, when we get into that dry midsummer, uh, we get various fungal diseases that just really hit beans hard. So again, I'm kind of an early crop bean guy, and then I'll late, like, plant them again like once that starts to go away. And with our long season. So I've adapted a lot of different crops that way. Somebody's saying uh, squash vine borers, zone 7. Yeah, I mean, squash, when I grew up in Pennsylvania, it was like you, you literally had to lock your car in the summertime or somebody would put a bag of zucchini in it. And down here in Texas, man, the vine borers get just about everything except the trombuchino, and they even whacked that this year. I, I didn't really take good care of my trombuchinos this year, but um, so many crops that are like I mean do you ever just feel like why do I bother why do I why do I bother and then there's so many other crops that if you grow the right thing for the right place at the right time like it just has a totally different result like you just get more than you could ever want or even sometimes I found some things seem to like they look really bad in midsummer but it doesn't even matter because they just come back in the fall. Uh, one of my crops that I'll, I'm about to give you definitely fits that. So these are plants that I think are really easy to grow. And if you look at what they cost to buy <clears throat> relative to frequency of use, they have a very good ROI. So you actually make money by growing them, I guess you'd say. My first one is celery. And I guess if you're not someone that cooks a lot, 
um, in kind of a classical sense and you don't use a lot of celery for bases and stuff, maybe it's not as high, high of an ROI crop for you. But to me, I use celery literally all the time. Like if I'm going to cook something and there's going to be any kind of a sauce, soup thing going on with it, you know, I'm starting off with a mirepoix, which is, you know, celery, carrots, onion. Or I'm going with uh, celery, peppers, and onions as the holy trinity if it's more of something toward that, that world. Or, you know, you're even in different sofritos and stuff like that, like celery is a huge base for me. And then celery has a lot of flavor. We, I think we throw away like the best parts of celery and the leaves and stems and stuff like that. So I grow a lot of celery that I don't bunch up and grow in that classic um, kind of blanched state that that you buy it in the store from. I, I just let it grow in its native form, and then you just cut off the outside of it. And generally you get about 18 months before a celery plant's like, dude, I'm going to seed. The thing is, I don't even grow celery in general, except for a few different varieties. I grow some like Chinese white and Chinese pink celeries, and I have to do that from seed. But in general, I grow my celery from leftovers from the grocery store. So I go to the grocery store, we buy a, a bunch of celery, you pull all of the stuff. Instead of cutting it, just pull all the stalks and leave the heart, and then plant the heart. And it'll grow for years. Like, you know, a year and a half, two years you'll get out of it, depending on your climate. And one of the ways I make that work even better, I have a little ebb and flow bed with a fish tank in my garage I use for training students. And one of the things that does for me is my, it's like hardens stuff off that's going to go outside. So when I get that new little, you know, little heart of celery, I'll stick it in there until it turns bright green. When it goes from that light whitish green color to a bright dark green, it's hardened off. I'll put it outside. It'll do well just about any time of the year. It'll grow, it'll grow through freezes. It'll grow in summer. It doesn't care as long as it gets enough water. Um, I grow a lot of it in aquaponics, but it grows in gardens. It grows everywhere. And when it goes to seed, I just let it go to seed, and then millions of little celery plants grow. And so it's it's one of the easiest things, and it, to me it has a high ROI because we use it so frequently. Next up is going to be mints. Um, and, like, peppermint is well-known. I grow peppermint. I grow spearmint. I grow sweet mint. I grow uh, lemon balm, which is a mint, a member of the mint family. I grow bee balm. That's a member of the mint family. All of them. I think that... If you can't grow mints, you either are growing them in the wrong place, like you're growing them in a place where they're getting too much sun. That's about the only thing that really knocks them back and not enough moisture. So as long as you have an area that gets a little bit of shade here and there and you can keep it moist, you can grow mint to the point where it actually becomes invasive and invades other parts of your yard. I don't have a problem with that, though, because I would rather mint be a ground cover than just about anything else. And my ducks don't eat it. That's one of the things I really love about ducks and chickens. Tend, I don't know if you guys have experienced the same, but my experience has been that ducks and chickens leave it alone. And a lot of other things that I've tried to use as ground covers, well, the ducks and chickens eat it. You know, plantain, ducks and chickens eat it. Hostas, ducks and chickens eat it. Like, so many things that make ground cover that actually are things you can use, ducks and chickens eat it. So I, I've done really well with mints. I love making teas. Um, it's definitely something that you can use to kind of accent salads and stuff like that. Uh, we do grow cucumbers and tomatoes and stuff like that as well in the time of year. They do well here. And like mint added to like a cucumber salsa is freaking delicious. Uh, there's just so many ways to use it. Next up is Swiss chard. And I would say that like greens in general are great high, high ROI crops. What I love about Swiss chard though is it's really two crops. So you have your celery-like stems. They're usually different colors or whatever, depending on what you're growing. 
And those can be cut up into chunks and like sautéed, fried, etc. Uh, used in soups, they're delicious. And then you've got your leaf that you use more like a spinach or a salad green. And salad greens are better when they're young. And if you're going to be sautéing them at all, use your bigger leaves. They'll let your stalks grow out, cut your leaves off, chop those up, sauté them down. Take your stalks, cook them separately, again, more like a celery, even though they don't taste anything like it. They have kind of a, a really great and a good way bitterness to them that contrasts with other vegetables. But what I really like about them, they're the ones to me that are like a zombie vegetable. And, and what I mean, that sounds bad, but what I mean is like when our summer really comes hard, they get stressed, bugs start eating it, they get some disease looking stuff on them, they kind of like fall back. And then when fall comes, they're like, dun, 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 and they just come back. And it grows huge, big, beautiful leaves. So fall through winter through spring, we get great, uh, great crop out of, uh, out of Swiss chard. And then the, the time of the year where it doesn't look really good, it doesn't really matter. It's just kind of look at it as a dormancy and it comes back for you. And it's a biannual. Most people say you get about 18 months. I've had some Swiss chard plants that are going two, two and a half, three years. Um, the way I've been able to make that happen is when they start setting that center stalk up, immediately as soon as you see it, cut it cut it out at the center as low as possible. And sometimes if you do that a couple times, it'll just kind of reboot it, and it'll start growing normal leaf form again. Sometimes you can't, and it's, it's time to kind of move on. Um, next up is red-veined sorrel. And I have tons of that growing in containers. It gets lots of moisture. It should be doing great. But it's a lot like the chard. In the deepest, hottest part of the summer, it kind of fades in color. It doesn't taste very nice. It doesn't look very nice. It just kind of barely holds on. But again, as soon as we get into the cooler weather of September, all the way through to the next, it's just boom. And it's a perennial. So it just goes on. As long as it doesn't all die, as long as any of the roots stay alive, when the conditions come back, it comes back. And if you want to talk about ROI... Red vein sorrel is an expensive weed. Go talk to chefs that do like micro salads or really kind of chefy looking beautiful salads. And I'm not even talking about microgreens here. I'm just talking about where like, you know, they do a salad and it's 15 bucks. Ask them what they pay for high quality small leaf form red vein sorrel. And the answer is a lot of freaking money. It's it's by they, they you know they buy it by like the ounce or the gram. You'd think they're buying drugs. Um, one of my good friends, John Dowie, who does a, a lot with microgreens and stuff too, he's like, I can sell the hell out of just plugs of that sorrel. And you again, depending on where you live, you may be able to grow it when it's the worst time for me, and not when it's the best time for me. But it's something that. It's delicious, it's good in cooked foods, it's good in salads, and it looks beautiful. But it's very, very expensive. And yet you almost can't fail in trying to grow it. My next one is basil, and it's like, you know, basil all. So small leaf, large leaf, lettuce leaf, sweet basil, holy basil, I don't care, all of it. It's also, it's another crop that's very expensive. Go look at fresh basil. And figure out what you pay by the pound for fresh basil. And it's one of those things that can just like hit like a boom on, on food that you're doing. There's so many things like you do a sautéed vegetables or sautéed meat or something like that. And then, you know, right at the end, take four or five big leaves of like a large leaf basil, roll it up like a cigarette and do a chiffonade, which is basically where you do like the thin ribbon slice of it. And you hit that on the top. And it's a totally different experience. And, and I, I don't know, if you can't grow basil 
I think it's time to reevaluate what you're doing. Um, we have basil that literally just at this point just shows up places because we've been growing so many different forms for so long. It'll just show up. And it's another thing that I don't know those of you guys who, uh, who, who grow basil and, and have livestock, but I have not noticed that my livestock tends to bother the basil much. Every once in a while the chickens will peck a leaf or two off of it. The ducks seem to want nothing to do with basil, which I love things that I like to eat and they don't. Because the things they like to eat, well, they eat it everywhere. Like That's why we grow comfrey up in real high-raised beds, just for the medicinal uses and the fertility uses, because I can't grow it on the ground, because the ducks are like, eh, comfrey, not interested, not interested. And then one day it's like, hey, guys, it's time to eat comfrey. And then they just level, completely wipe it out. So um, I love the, the basil. And then what started all this? Sweet potato. Now, I like to grow the, 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 uh, the Japanese purple sweet potato. I think it's called Osaka. Is, is the is the particular cultivar, but there's several different cultivars that are in this kind of Japanese um, Taiwanese uh, strain, and they have a standard dark green leaf. When I say purple, I'm talking about purple leaves, and the potatoes themselves have a reddish purple skin, and they're not orange like a normal sweet potato. They're more of a creamy buttery looking color, a little bit of a yellow butter color to them. They don't taste like normal sweet potatoes either. Um, anybody out there grow them? I've been talking about them long enough. I'm sure some of y'all do. Um, they taste, if you roast one on the grill, they almost taste like a buttered potato even if you don't put butter on them. And so the potato tuber is obviously a valuable crop harvest. We don't eat a lot of potatoes though, but I usually grow them every year. And then once we get into our fall, we'll harvest some of the tubers. You know, And through our fall, maybe once a month we'll do you know, fry sweet potato fries out of them. And the way to do sweet potato fries, guys, if you're going to do it, do it right. Chop them up into the size fries you want. Fry them till they're done, but they'll be limp and miserable. No matter how long you fry them, they're just going to be limp and miserable the first time. So as soon as they're actually done, where you can take a bite out of it and it's not raw, take them out, drain them, and let them cool. Keep your oil hot. After they drain and cool for about five minutes, I don't understand the chemistry behind it. I'm sure it has something to do with the starch uh, or what have you. You put them back in, and then they're going to brown, and they're going to crisp, and they're like a pillow inside. And they're fantastic. But the other reason we grow them is the greens. And we get way more out of the greens than we do out of the tubers. Because as soon as they actually start growing, which is very early in the year, as soon as it warms up, you can just cut, and you can never keep up with how much greens you're growing. And it's a great weed suppression strategy because generally the, the greens will grow about this tall and they kind of peter out at that height and they start twisting around each other. And if you have like peppers or whatever growing in, in, or, in with them, all you have to do is keep them pruned off that plant and that plant will get up above them. It'll reduce irrigation requirements. It'll keep the ground covered. It suppresses weeds. And then whatever excess you have, you know, I said like a lot of things the ducks don't eat, they freaking love sweet potato greens. They love them, but they don't get up and stuff to get at them. It, they don't seem to like them that much. In fact, what I've found is the way that I get the ducks to eat the sweet potato greens is I prune them, and then I throw them into their water. And as soon as they hit the water, that's it. It's on. Like, you throw them on the ground, like, yeah, maybe. Um, but the uh, water spinach, the same thing. As soon as it's in one of their tubs, well, now it's now it's candy. Now they got to eat it. So we're getting livestock feed. We're getting people feed. And we're getting two crops. We're getting weed suppression. We're getting natural mulch, and you've got a plant that if you just save one tuber every year, you can propagate over and over and over again. 
So those are like those are like my six biggest ones, and uh, I, I recommend that you you know, try a couple of them at least. And if I had to pick from them as the most valuable to my kitchen, it would honestly be the celery, um, the Swiss chard, and uh, basil. Those are the top three out of the six I gave you that we use the most. Because basil, I mean, I grow basil in the summer and, and all in the beds. And then as soon as it gets too cold, we start growing it in the aquaponics and the hydroponic systems. And, I mean, basil is just one of those things with that just shot of summer-spring feel to it uh, when you're in the depth of winter. Um, but all of them are great. And the celery is, if you have never grown celery from the core of supermarket celery and you use celery... You, every time you throw away that core, you are wasting a resource that can produce for you over and over and over and over again. And what you'll get is a very slow-growing, kind of small, compact plant. It'll grow for a while, and then it'll, get, it'll start to grow a lot more rapidly once it really develops. A, it'll develop a huge kind of carrot-shaped uh, white core root. And then once it gets to a certain point after that, it's going to go to seed. And you have choices there. There's another thing... Um, There's, there's a thing called celeriac or something like that where it's designed to you know, eat more of the bottom. Uh, there's celery that is grown as a root crop, but all celery root is good. So when you start heading towards seed, you can go ahead and pull that out and, and peel and cut up that root, and it's delicious, even from regular old celery. If you do that, though, you're not going to get your, um, your seed harvest. And um, if you wait till it goes all the way to seed, it's not going to be as good. But if you grow a lot of it, you can, you know, randomly pick. And winter stew with chopped up celery root in it is unfrickin' believable. So with that, we'll go ahead and wrap up. And uh, next week, we'll be back with a whole new uh, series of Miyagi Mornings episodes. Thank you for tuning into this week's episode of the Miyagi Morning Recap. Remember, I do Miyagi Mornings to create short and shareable content for your friends and family who may not be up to listening to an entire podcast. Each of these segments from today's show is only five to eight minutes long and can be shared as both YouTube or Odyssey videos. Links to the video files for each segment are in today's show notes. If you want to submit a question for Miyagi Mornings, just email jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com with Miyagi Mornings in the subject line. All subjects other than politics are welcome for this special series. And please remember, you can always support the Survival Podcast by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com or becoming a member of the Members Support Brigade.